Well, the Gospels, the four Gospels have been called passion narratives with long introductions. Passion narratives with long introductions, meaning they're aimed at Jesus' passion, his passion being his suffering and his death, and everything else in the story is an introduction. It leads up to that. The text is pointed to the passion from the beginning. They are passion narratives with long introductions. And with our text this morning, from John 18, where Jesus is arrested, we enter the passion narrative. The introduction is over. Jesus has just prayed at the end of the long upper room discourse, which occupies chapters 13 through 17. He's just prayed a prayer in which he spoke of his self-consecration. He is consecrating himself to be the new Passover lamb, who takes away the sin of the world. And so here now, in our text, after the meal is finished, after Judas has gone out into the night, after this long block of teaching and praying is completed, and after the hymn they've sung has ended, Jesus puts this self-consecration into effect. Though he has spoken of it as already accomplished, his obedience now, in these hours, will be the means by which he brings forth the glory for which he has prayed. So these are now the hours on which the completion of his mission, and thus the redemption of the world, hang. And so we'll make three points. They're there in the back inside page of the bulletin. Calm, compassion, and the cup. So first, the calm. So this is John 18, verse 1. It says, When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. So this is, the Kidron's a little river. The Kidron Valley's east of the temple complex. And it's a decline of a few hundred feet down to the riverbed, and then the river runs southeast from Jerusalem down toward the Dead Sea. Now, it's a river which would be dry most of the year, but it would be a, it would be a torrent during the rainy seasons. It's dry here in the scene in our, our text. And on the other side of this little river valley is the Mount of Olives. And on the lower slopes of the Mount of Olives, there's a garden or perhaps an olive grove, which is named in the other Gospels, Gethsemane, which means oil press. The total journey here is maybe one mile. Jewish law forbids long journeys on the night of the Passover. So Jesus and his little band, they set out, and they would have seen thousands of lights from houses. Right? The city's packed with pilgrims celebrating the feast from all over the world. And he, his disciples, they go into this garden. And it's right here between verse 1 and verse 2 of our text that the other Gospels tell us of our Lord's agony. Right? It's right here where we learn of his sweating blood. And his vigil in prayer. His sleeping disciples. 
is receiving angelic aid. And so we know the weight, right? We know the torment of Jesus' soul in this hour. And then in verse 2, we read, Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often, often met there with his disciples. In fact, Luke tells us that during the last week of his life, this week that, he's, that the text is in, he lodged there every night. Right, wherever this little grove is on the Mount of Olives, Jesus spent every night there the last week of his life. And certainly on his previous visits to Jerusalem, this garden, right, perhaps owned by a benefactor of Jesus, right, was made available to him and to his disciples. As John tells us, they often used it. And Judas knows this, the text says. Judas knows this. But you know what else? Jesus knows that Judas knows this. Right? And despite, or even in the midst of Jesus' anguish of soul, he's acting here with sovereign calm, with these serene, purposeful movements. He knows that Judas knows the place. And so Jesus knows. He knows that he will be found here. Right? So why did he go here? He went here because he wants to be arrested right there. So he's setting a trap for Judas, not the other way around. And there are grand narrative implications of this in the biblical story. The the serpent beguiled the first Adam in a garden. And this snake, Judas, inspired by the snake, will be beguiled by the obedience of the second Adam in this garden. In the language of the, the early fathers of the church, Jesus is deceiving the deceiver. He's setting himself up there as bait, waiting for them to bite. But he moves here, he knows Jesus will find him. Judas will find him. And he does it for a second reason. There's another reason he picks this spot. It's out of the city. And so there'll be no thronging crowd to protect him as there was around him on Palm Sunday, which was just a few days ago. But he wants the solitude. Jesus wants it that way. He wants no armed rebellion, no mass uprising. He picks the time. He picks the place. And he waits, and he prays, and he waits. And so Judas, he's the serpent's servant, right? He comes into the garden, guiding, if you look at verse 3, Chapter 8, in guiding, he says, a detachment of soldiers and some officials, some officials from the scribes and Pharisees. Now, there are two sets of forces here. Right? The detachment of soldiers is Roman. These are Roman soldiers. And a detachment was also known as a cohort, and it was a thousand troops. 
And there were certainly probably less than a thousand here, but there was a lot. There was enough so that we learn right after our text in chapter 18 that the captain of the cohort was present. The captain of the thousand. And Matthew tells us it was a large crowd that comes to arrest Jesus. Right? He's not being arrested by six or eight people here. This is a big, intimidating crowd of people. It's a, it's a good, goodly number of Roman soldiers. Right? These troops would normally be stationed over and up the coast on the Mediterranean at Caesarea. But they were always deployed by the empire down to Jerusalem, in the area of Jerusalem, during Jewish feasts in case there was an uprising or a rebellion that they had to squash. And there was a little fortress known as the Antonia Fortress near Jerusalem. And the detachment of troops would come down off the coast and they'd sit there and they'd watch the Jewish proceedings to make sure there was no rebellion going on. And that's what's happening here. That's why they're nearby. That's why they show up for the arrest. Now, they're not the only people here, though. There's another group present. Right? And these are officials from the Jewish leaders. These are the temple police force. Right? The Jewish temple complex had its own police force that policed the complex and the region around the complex. Those, that police force is with the Roman force here, and they go together to arrest Jesus. In fact, the temple police have already tried to arrest Jesus. In, way back in John chapter 7. And, and to the dismay of the Jewish leadership, the scribes and Pharisees, they, they didn't carry on with the arrest. They went back to the scribes and Pharisees and said, no man has ever spoke like this man. And so they refused to arrest him. But here, they will be the primary arresting officers because Jesus will be taken into Jewish custody first. And so what we have in the picture, the way John's painted it, is we have Jews and Gentiles. Right? Soldiers representing the whole world coming to arrest Jesus. Also, in addition to Judas's you know, personal treachery, his treason, we also have combined here in the text, as has been in many cases down through history, the forces of corrupt religion and political ruthlessness. Right? They're both conspiring against Jesus at this point. And they're carrying, the text says, torches and lanterns. Now, on one level, this is perfectly normal. It's night, and they need light. But also, who knows? Who knows? Maybe he's hiding. Maybe he'd be hiding somewhere. Maybe there would have to be a search or a chase up a dark mountainside so they're ready. And they're also carrying weapons, clubs and swords. It's pretty clear that they're expecting, or at least they're prepared for armed resistance. Which is, of course, quite ironic. The way that this Jesus entered this city on his donkey some four or five days ago is completely lost on all the powers that be. So there's hundreds of people here. Jewish police, Roman soldiers, armed. And they've come to exactly the spot Jesus wants them to come to. And then making no attempt to hide because he's the consecrated sacrifice. 
Right? Remember, this is where I want you to be reminded of something Jesus has said over and over and over in John's gospel. Right? I only do what I see the Father doing. I only say what I hear the Father saying. That's still in play here. And then he steps forth. Verse 4. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him. That's critical right there. Knowing all that was going to happen to him. Right? That's, if you ask, what's the source of Jesus' sovereign serenity? That's the source of it. Right? His calm. Even in the midst of his soul recoiling in horror, this serenity should not be uh, you know, idealized as some sort of you know, sweet thing where there's no turbulence of soul. There's a deep horror in Jesus' soul, and at the same time, the mystery of some sort of supernatural calm. Right? At the very beginning of this long evening, back in John 13, right at the beginning when he washed the disciples' feet, The text says, Jesus, knowing he had come from God and that he was going back to God, got up and washed the disciples' feet. He's sure of his origin. He's sure of his destiny. And that makes him sure of his mission. You know, you may not know all that's going to happen to you. But you do know your origin. And you do know your destiny. Right? And you do know the one who has ordained and ordered all that happens to you. And you do know the end of all of his ways. And so you can partake of this sovereign serenity even in the midst of your anguish. And so Jesus, he strides forth. He goes out with this royal poise his command of the situation, he takes initiative, he takes control of the situation, he asks this massive armed force, who is it you want? Now, maybe Judas kissed him right here, or just prior to this. John doesn't record the kiss, but John does tell us that Judas was standing right there. Judas the traitor was standing right there. Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus says, I am he. This is just ambiguous enough. Just ambiguous enough to be disturbing to them. On one level, right, it simply means I'm the guy you're looking for. But it's worded by Jesus in such a way, right, that it evokes God's own self-revelation in Exodus 3 to Moses, where he says, I am who I am. He tells Moses, tell them, I am sent you. And then throughout the whole of Isaiah, 40 through 55, if you read those chapters in Isaiah, 40 through 55, this is how Yahweh identifies himself as the only singular, unique, incomparable God, over and over and over, Through the prophet, he says, I am he, I am he, I am he. And of course, Jesus in this gospel has used a string of I am statements, right? To indicate who he is. 
all of which sort of hint at his identity, but some of them clearly affirm his divinity. Before Abraham was, I am. If you do not believe I am he, you will die in your sins. And so here when he says I am he, we're told the arresting mob draws back and falls to the ground. Let me tell you, Jesus is not impressed by this supposed quasi-act of religious reverence. They see Jesus' words as at least possibly kind of maybe implying divinity, and they're scared about that. It's not as if they believe the claim, though perhaps some of them are questioning. But in this setting, the words are so startling and powerful that they draw back and they fall. One wonders, right, did Judas fall down? I mean, who does, who does he think Jesus is? In fact, in any event, it's worth asking this question right here in the text. So here you have it. Here's a carpenter standing there, an itinerant rabbi. Here's hundreds of Roman and Jewish authorities armed to the teeth on the ground while he's standing there. In his majestic calm, the question is this, just who is arresting whom here? Right? This has become a very arresting arrest for the arresters. Right? It's a very arresting arrest. And Jesus knows they don't believe the claims. They're not falling down out of reverence to him. This is a kind of knee-jerk religious reaction. He doesn't even acknowledge it. He knows what's going to happen. They're going to arrest him and crucify him. This falling down thing and acknowledging that I am he, there was a time for that. This hour is not that time. So whether he even waits for them to get up or not, the text doesn't say. They fall down. Do you know what Jesus does? He repeats the question. He says, who do you want? Who do you want? And they answer again. Jesus of Nazareth. This is calm. Calm in the eye of the storm. Jesus directs his own arrest. So the second thing I want us to see here this morning is, is the compassion. He answers them. He says, I told you I am he. Now here it's clear he's, he's simply saying, you know, when you preface I am he with I told you, he knows now, they know now, all right, he's just saying he's the guy we're looking for. In fact, he goes on, he says, if you're looking for me, if you're looking for me, then let these men go. But apparently the soldiers had plans to arrest the whole gang, not just the ringleader. And you know what else Jesus knows? Jesus has already prophesied this. He knows that his disciples will abandon him, that they will temporarily be scattered but he's still looking out for them. He does not want them arrested. Right? The text tells us he knew everything that was going to happen to him, and since they're looking for him, they should let his disciples go. And he's successful here. He's successful here. Jesus alone is arrested. Now, you might think this is a simple detail, just a, a mere point of human decency, but John says... 
This act of compassion in this hour happened so that the words of Jesus might be fulfilled. This little simple action, you came for me, let them go. Right? Is Jesus as the sovereign actor on the stage? His actions are fulfilling his own words. That's how much mastery Jesus has over his own arrest. He's protecting his sheep as the good shepherd, which is such a strong theme in John's gospel, even now. The words that are being fulfilled here, John tells us, they're these words. I have not lost one of the sheep that you've given me. Like the, the physical here, the physical, the protection from arrest, is a sign of the spiritual. Right? His saving protection for every last one of his sheep. And that's how John reads this event. The shepherd doesn't lose a single sheep. And that starts right here. Don't touch them, you came for me. You know what else is at play here right under the surface? Is Jesus' atoning substitution. Take me, not them. I substitute for them. I go in their place. I lay down my life for them. Let them go. He's already entered deeply into the mystery, the substitutionary mystery of the cross. And so it's a beautiful act of compassion. And it's a key step to securing their and your salvation. This obedience of Jesus for his sheep in this hour. He loved his own who were in the world. He loved them even till the end, John tells us. So then in verse 10, Simon Peter, who had a sword, probably a short sword that could be worn under his clothing, he draws it and he strikes the high priest's servant. Notice the detail here. I want to point out two details. Cutting off his right ear. Not his left ear, his right ear. There's a certain authenticity that only an eyewitness account can have. Luke records that same detail. That it was his right ear. But you know what's interesting? None of the other Gospels tell you who this servant's name was. But John knows his name. Because John was connected to the priestly family. And this is the high priest servant. And so John just says, as an aside, the servant's name was Malchus. I find these things heartening about the inspiration and the divinely given nature of Scripture. John, and only John, Luke does not know the name. Matthew doesn't know, but John knows. How would John know the name of the high priest's servant? Well, we know that John had connections to the priestly family. And we know from Luke's gospel that Jesus healed this man's ear. So what does that tell us about Jesus? It tells us that he not only protects his own, he heals the wounded, including the wounded that have come out to arrest him and crucify him. Right? There's nothing out of Jesus' character here. Right? This is the way he treats his enemies. He's the great physician. And so there's a window here into our Lord's compassion, not only for his friends, but for all men, even his enemies. This is something, of course, that we'll see much later from the cross when he says, you know, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. But we see it here already. We glimpse it. So finally, the third point here is the cup. In verse 11, Jesus commands Peter, put away your sword. 
Right? Famously in Matthew, it's you know, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. So Peter is commanded to put this sword away. But there's more at play here, right? This is not just like an amateurish and ineffective protest by Peter, like a piece of resistance from Peter. It's downright demonic. Peter is a theologian of glory. Luther used to say we should be theologians of the cross. He tended to despise theologians of glory. This is a replay of, of, you know, Peter telling Jesus, Lord, you would never, you'll never suffer. And you remember how Jesus responded then, get behind me, Satan. This is the thing to see here, I think. Our very best intentions, often sometimes it is our best intentions, they can be demonic because they're at odds with the way of the cross. Because we are at odds with the way of the cross. Here you have total misunderstanding by Peter, even at this late hour, mixed with something like a skewed version of courage. Like some raging desire to do something bold and something big and something to defend Jesus' honor and to not stand by idly and to not be silent, but to act in the moment of crisis. And Jesus is having none of it. He turns to Peter and he says this, Shall I not drink the cup my father has given me? There's two things about this cup. The first one we saw in the Old Testament lesson from Isaiah 51. Right, This cup, if we ask what does he mean, it is not merely the the sufferings he's about to undergo. The cup is the cup of God's outpoured wrath. It's the cup of God's just judgment on sin. This cup is why Jesus is greatly troubled, sweats blood. It's why he asked the Father, is there any way the cup can be taken from me? It's a cup of holy justice, and he drinks it to the dregs. Why? To turn it into the cup of blessing, the cup of the new covenant in the blood of Christ. This cup of judgment gives you that cup of blessing. It's a majestic transformation in the mercy of God. And so the justice of God will be satisfied here. But it's very important to see that Jesus is not placating an angry God or an angry father. The father and the son are one. They've agreed in everlasting love to send the beloved son to drink the cup for our redemption. It's very important that we see this. The cross does not create the love of God the Father. It manifests the love of God the Father. In the uh, the 20th century, there was a famous mid-20th century scholar and a physician, Albert Schweitzer. I'm sure some of you know who he is. Schweitzer was a New Testament scholar, medical doctor. And Schweitzer concludes, when he reads the Gospels, uh, that as great as Jesus was, and he thinks he was great, not divine, but really, really great. As great as Jesus was, Schweitzer says he's a mistaken idealist. Crushed, Schweitzer says, crushed on the wheel of history. 
crushed by the forces of history, trying to force the kingdom to come by his own death, he fails. But the text, you know, it presents us with the exact opposite vision. And it presents us with a Jesus in sovereign serenity, laying down his life at his own time, in his own place, in his own way. No one takes it from him. Right, you should see the authority of Jesus in this arrest scene. And I think this is actually a concretely important text for us. For many reasons, but you know, in a world which appears at times to have no sovereign. I mean, what would this have looked like to just a secular observer, this scene? It would look like another innocent good man being corralled by the powers that be and put in jail. It would look like another meaningless event in a sea of meaningless events. Right? So you have a world with a little God or a limited God or no God at all. In the midst of that world, this scene, Jesus' mastery and his poise should cause us to take comfort. Right? Because he, you know, he, if he can act as he acts here, right, controlling his captors, protecting his own, healing the wounded, then you can be assured that he is standing calmly and he is standing compassionately on the water in the middle of your storms. Right? Because right? we all have our own dark nights of the soul, right? our own little or not so little Gethsemanes to pass through. Nobody gets to skirt this way of the cross. Now, it's true, this Gethsemane is unique. It's unlike all others, and it's not shared. Jesus alone does it. Right? He bears it alone. The cup he drinks is not shared. It's drunk in our place as our substitute from his Father's hand. But it's done so that this one might stand this way in the middle of your chaos and distress, and confusion, and night terrors, and sweating. And you know what this means? It means, in the words of a Scottish theologian, P.T. Forsyth, another mid-20th century figure, he said this, commenting on this text. He said, the devils we meet were all foredamned, meaning damned beforehand in the Satan Christ ruined. It's a beautiful thing. The devils we meet were all foredamned in the Satan Christ ruined. Ruined by his calm, sovereign serenity, by his compassion, unfailing to the end, and by his unswerving obedience for you, drinking the cup of cursing that we might be blessed. Glory be to Christ for his obedience in the hour of his arrest. Amen. Amen.